what's life been like in an RV for a year? Um, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing journalist with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today on the podcast, it's been one year since the fires that ravaged wine country. So Sonoma County and other parts of the North Bay, north of San Francisco. And we'll be taking a look at how the region is rebuilding. So in our, we're looking exclusively during our interview segment of the podcast this week. Uh, we'll be talking with Santa Rosa Mayor Chris Corsi, also a uh, Santa Rosa resident named John Thill, um, whose uh, house and businesses were destroyed uh, in the fire last year. And we'll be talking with uh, John about what it's like to live in an RV for an entire year. Uh, and we recommend we did an episode with both of those guests last year. Um, we recommend you take a listen to that. We will also be talking about a few things on your ballot in our new recurring segment, Housing on the Ballot, appropriately <laughs> named. Just being very clear. Yeah. Yeah. Two weeks from now, you can expect a lot, lot more. Yeah. It'll, we'll do be doing a, right before the election, um, a roundup of really everything housing related that you'll be voting on statewide. Uh, so that's the breaking down both gubernatorial candidates' positions on housing as well as the for housing-related ballot measures. And if you are uh, really want some of that information now, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of work uh, at the LA Times, publishing uh, a bunch of stories about Proposition 10, the rent control initiative. You should also check out CalMatters Election Guide, I say passive-aggressively. And you can also see me and the way the light glints off my sweat-filled skin in a one-minute video recapping all of the housing measures on... Well, I guess one-minute video for two housing measures on the ballot. Each get a minute video. Does that make sense? So there's two There's minute. two minutes of me. Yeah. That's the only thing and, you need to know. And you made it sound really enticing to, to watch. Yeah. Yeah. There was no—the first video, they didn't put makeup on me. Huh. And you can tell. <laughs> but first, the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. The avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the absurd slash whimsical slash hopefully lighter side of California's housing crisis. We have a very personal avocado this fortnight. Liam. Yeah, it was definitely uh, a moment of whimsy for the two of us on Saturday night. Uh, had some beers together and at a bar. Uh, in Midtown Sacramento. In Midtown Sacramento, where the most hopping place in all of Sacramento. Uh and uh, <laughs> and if if you couldn't sense the disdain <laughs> dripping from that, you could definitely see it here yes, in the studio. Yeah, so. I like I like living here. Um, <laughs> so so we're at this bar, uh, good good place, uh, lovely outdoor seating. Um, Matt and I get our beers, sit down, and mm-hmm. we overhear something. I believe I paid for this round. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Thanks, uh, appreciate it. And um, we overhear something. We sit down outside, and it's the next table over, and they're having a conversation about something that we both know very well. Prop 13. Prop 13 that you, I, and all of us know very well. And we say, this is a conversation we need to jump in on. Yes. And if I remember correctly, um, one, it was a a group of, what, four or five people sitting around a bar? Yeah. Or sitting around a table. Yeah. Um, One person was basically asking... If I re- I was told that if I refinance this property I own, my property taxes will go up. Right. And another guy was saying, no, dude, that is not what happens. Um, and that back and forth went on for a little bit. And then finally I was like, 
I have to intervene here. Yes. This the the guy saying that that won't happen. He's right, and he turned out to be. He turned out to be an assessor actually, <laughs> in Santa Barbara County. So he definitely knew what he was talking yeah. about. Didn't need us to, to no. chime in and support him. No. Uh, but that led to a, a lovely long conversation where uh, we we uh, he learned that uh, I had written this big article about um, property inheritance, property tax inheritance, uh, low rates, low bills for children of homeowners. Um, gave me a high five, which was kind of fun. Yeah. Um, and so this was maybe a 90-minute uh, conversation, maybe a little shorter than that. It right? was great. It was great. So yeah. we, we we only in Sacramento do you go out at the bar, at, overhear people talking about Prop 13, and then make a night out of it. And then there's an epilogue to this story. So, uh, you know, this community in Sacramento is very small. You get a call on Monday from a political consultant who said, hey, um, heard you're at the bar Saturday night talking about Prop 13. <laughs> Which in a in a vacuum, that could be true for me for any weekend or any day, really. Yeah, yeah. At a bar talking about Prop Thirteen. <laughs> yeah. Not so, at the Mermaid Bar. Not at the Mermaid Bar. So deep cut for our longtime listeners. Uh, so um, this to sum this up, basically, if you come to, if you live in Sacramento or come to visit for any reason, expect when you go out at night, be prepared to talk about uh, property taxation. In California. Yes, please. That concludes our avocado of the fortnight. Let's move on to our next segment. Housing on the ballot. So, um, again, uh, a ton of stuff has happened. And then also not really much has happened simultaneously over the past couple of weeks. Yeah. So I, I, again, encourage you to check out uh, coverage um, that we've done uh, looking deep at, at, at uh, Prop 10 and, and Prop 5 um, in, in particular, and also the ongoing governor's race, um, you know, stuff that we've been doing and, and, and other other folks um, around the political press as well. Let's start there, actually. Let's start yeah. with um, the one and only debate between Gavin Newsom and John Cox. Um, that how many people do you think listen to that live? So it was so it was more context. It was ten in the morning mm-hmm. on Columbus Day on the radio, mm-hmm. and I I don't know, man, like a thousand. <laughs> well, so I, I think more than that. Yeah, no, more than that. That was me being a bit of a jerk. Mm-hmm. But this was not a not a highly, uh, uh, you know. Popular event, and it takes nothing. I, you know, I thought the moderator, you know, Scott Schaefer, he did a great job. KQD did a fantastic job. So I think it was a very good, probably the best radio debate you can get in an hour. But the timing was not really conducive towards a lot of people listening into what these candidates had to say. Which, which is a shame. Yes, I mean, which is a shame. And to provide more context, there was very little political incentive for Newsom to actually have a multiple debates, right, or a debate that had a lot of eyeballs. Um, on it because he was leading so much and there was more of a risk that something could go wrong as opposed to something going right. Yeah. But the first question of yes. the debate uh, was about housing and housing affordability. It led to, a, in, in my view, a pretty decent 10-minute uh, long conversation between the two candidates that I think spelled out at as deep as a level as you're going to get in that kind of format, the different approaches that these candidates are going to have. So um, Newsom pretty much talked um, about um, increasing housing subsidies in one way or another. That was his predominant way of talking about how he was going to address these issues. And not just money for new low-income housing, but also subsidies to incentivize cities to uh, permit or allow for housing of all income levels. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and then John Cox, uh, by contrast, talked um, predominantly, almost exclusively, about um, getting rid of or weakening uh, regulations, um, getting in the way of uh, of housing production, um, and and specifically uh, the California Environmental Quality Act, right. which, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably well know, yeah. colloquially known as CEQA. Right, right. So I, I, I do want to talk, I didn't really hear a ton different or unexpected from either Newsom or Cox, except for one thing from Newsom specifically, yeah. which was he talked about the fiscalization of land use, Yeah, <laughs> um, which housing nerds, I think, listening to that debate kind of perked up when they when they heard him talk. Obviously, he didn't use that phrase because- right. Who would, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> well, I, but, but Newsom did, Newsom's wonkiness, in Newsom's wonkiness, and we'll get right back. I mean, he did say he wants to make changes to CEQA to create uh, more categorical exemptions for socially desirable projects. Yes. So Newsom is certainly prone to using wonkies yes. when, he's, uh, when he'd like to. Yes, so, and there's yeah. obviously, you know, that also will sometimes allow you to evade certain responses yes. the more you get into the weeds. Yeah. Um, but I did think, I mean, Newsom talked about one of the things that we have to do is change the equation for cities, their fiscal incentives to zone and approve more housing as opposed to retail. And just to quickly summarize what this dilemma is for cities, if there's a vacant lot and I'm a city and I'm deciding between approve, this is obviously incredibly simplified, but if I'm deciding between uh, approving a hotel or a Target or a multifamily apartment building on that vacant lot, I typically will get a ton more revenue in the form of sales taxes and hotel taxes and other types of taxes from the hotel or the Target and the apartment building, it may be a losing fiscal proposition for me because along with the people that come in that apartment building, they need services, right? painful things like or annoying things like schools and parks and libraries. Right. So Newsom was talking about this, and then Scott Schaefer, to his credit, yes. jumps in and says, do you want to – well, he jumps in and says, well, does that mean – Prop 13 is on the table. Yeah, and Newsom said said it was because yes. the root of this sort of uh, fiscalization of land use issue is the fact that of the pr- property tax restrictions that are put on Prop 13 and uh, and and that are not there for some of the other uh, kinds of taxes, right? And so Newsom said yes. Um, and then you know later later on he had an interview with um, my colleague George Skelton um, at the Times where he specifically said, you know, the split rule initiative that we mentioned at the top of the podcast is a thing that he would consider. Um, he said, you know, we could, should consider talking about charging commercial properties more uh, more taxes, property taxes than, than homes. Yes. Although that many people would argue that might exacerbate the fiscalization of land use uh, I as think, opposed yes. to. So, so I think that's, I think that's correct. That's, that's <laughs> a, a topic for another podcast. That's a topic for another podcast that sounds like Yes, that that, that that is correct. But I think I think basically by willing to talk about this and put this on the table, I think we're going to see um, steps towards sort of this more holistic conversation about the state's general revenues and how they incentivize things that we may like or may not like, or how sort of the state has to deal with the swings in the stock market uh, that currently um, sort of lead to this, you know, a lot of revenue volatility because we rely so much on income taxes as opposed to, say, other forms of taxes that are more stable. Yeah, and I think um, basically the the incorporation of housing policy and tax policy broadly, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And we, I mean, I think we can just say here, 
the that first question, Scott Schaefer solicited my thoughts and Liam's thoughts for for that question. And we're very appreciative of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So before we leave this topic, one more thing. You know, I said uh, when reviewing kind of the the uh, uh, approaches that both Newsom and Cox laid out. You know, Newsom being sort of money. Cox being regulation, there was one area that was actually very different. Um, you know, Scott, again, to his credit, said, oh, OK, well, to, to, to Cox, um, what about local regulation over yeah. development? Do you think cities and counties have the appropriate amount of authority to approve projects or, or be involved in the housing space or should they have less? Because that's sort you know, of a common critique. And Cox said, uh, no, leave it with cities and counties. They have the exact they should have the exact amount of control Wh- that they have right now, which is. Yeah. Uh, incredibly interesting too, although predictable, yes. but incredibly interesting because Cox is a developer. Right. And you talk to most developers, not fans of local control. That's right. Not fans. Right, right. And then uh, by contrast, Newsom said, you know, there should be more of a role to state for the state to step in. Um, he, again, couched it in terms of financial incentives and disincentives, but he seemed to be more willing to impinge on or change the relationship yeah. between state and locals on housing than, than Cox is. Yeah, I think that's an accurate assessment. All right. Any, any other takeaways from the one and only relatively brief gubernatorial debate that we had? No. No, not for me either. And let's move on to what's happening with uh, Prop 10 and the battle to expand rent control in California. Right. So uh, last episode, we talked about sort of what I uh, sort of the big poll that came out uh, that showed rent control Prop 10 in trouble. Um, And since then, we've only gotten more evidence of that, um, both in the forms of other polls that have essentially been along the same lines um, as what uh, PPIC, those who did the group of the first poll, found. Uh, And also in terms of the money, um, which has gotten to be about what what I have expected. And and in fact, I think it'll end up even higher. Um, So I ran the numbers the end of last week. And I found, and I'll be updating this as you know we sort of go on here. But the yes side uh, had raised roughly twenty-two million, which is actually a little bit higher than I thought they were going to come in at. Mm-hmm. And then the no side was at fifty-nine million, um, you know, for a total of eighty-one million. And again, this is the end of last week, and so it's probably even higher than that now. And the sort of three-to-one spending disparity that I that sort of we had expected to be there is in fact what's going to happen. And again, would not be shocked to see this campaign top out at like 90 million dollars which is insane it's insane amount of money, of money. yeah it's a lot of money and of course this makes it all the more difficult for supporters to be able to get their message out when you have such an avalanche of cash um against them yes and i think a key question so just going back to the polling for a minute the public policy institute of california poll surprised many including myself that Prop 10 was trailing by double digits relatively early, right? So before a lot of the fundraising, so the, the numbers Liam just cited is is money that's into the coffers of people who are going to spend. It's not what's actually been spent yet. Um, the pro side is actually, the, the pro Prop 10 people, the expand rent control people, it's actually spent a good deal of money. A lot more, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, when it came out that, rent control was trailing by that prop 10 was trailing by double digits there was a thought that was like okay it's one poll it's one poll right you see fluctuations between polls and so i think the tenant side of things were really kind of clinging to that argument this latest poll that came out from survey usa 
very similar numbers. When a second poll comes and confirms what the first poll basically said, that's it's not good news for the yes on 10 people. Yeah, and you're already sort of seeing some, uh, you know, sort of um, pre-obituaries, I want to say. You know, there yeah. was a, a post that Tenants Together, which is one of the major tenants' rights groups in the state, put out uh, the end of last week that basically said, look, no matter what happens in this election, we've started a conversation and are building a coalition that will allow us to address these issues in the future, et cetera. And you don't really say things like that if you don't really know how things might are going are gonna to end up. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the conventional wisdom with any initiative is that the no side gains momentum the closer you get towards the election. But that being said, still expect to see a ton of advertisement around this. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, we're going to do a, what is it, soup to nuts? Is that the expression? Sure. I was going to go with robust, but you can you can use the cliche. Yeah. Hmm. Um, we're going to do a soup to nuts breakdown of housing on the ballot. Uh, two weeks from now, we'll get you all set. If you haven't voted already, which you can, you can vote right now if you wanted to. But wait. <laughs> if you're wait conf- for us. If you're confused at all, yeah. we are here to help. Yes. And we'll be here in two weeks. All right. So let's talk briefly about the rebuilding that's been going on in the North Bay and kind of the, the housing angle on it. What what you are kind of the biggest themes that jump out and, and the questions we should have about how the North Bay is going about its rebuilding? Well, I think, you know, first of all, I, I don't think you can overlook um, or forget about the fact that there's a tremendous amount of uh, pain and suffering that yes. is a part of this process. Uh, and it's one that certainly shapes and colors um, any sort of practical answer that you might have for how to do this. And so, um I think that that's essential and and uh, underscores everything that you can talk about in the in the context of this. I think for me, from a higher level, putting aside, I think questions about whether there is enough insurance for people, mm-hmm. how much it costs to rebuild, whether there are enough workers, all these sorts of things that I think are practical questions that we would face this community and any other community that um, would, may have to address uh, uh, rebuilding a natural disaster like this. I think for me, the, the sort of most interesting thing is sort of the philosophical decisions that you make as a community and as an elected bodies about what you're going to do. And so let me put a bit of a finer point on that. Um, Do you say, okay, there are certain parts of this region that may have burned before, are burning now. We look at these maps and they don't, they seem like places that are really, really risky to rebuild a house there. So do we as a community decide that we're going to allow that to happen? Number one. Yeah. Number two, um, this part of the state, Sonoma County, um, Northern California, um, areas or Bay Area, um, face a severe housing shortage prior to this event happening. This event wipes out thousands of homes, only exacerbating that shortage. If you have locations now that are, you know, vacant land, do you decide to build more houses on them than you had before? Yeah. So th- without sounding too glib or too callous, right? You could view it as a opportunity to build more, to to build to a level that the region needs. It is certainly easier to build on, on when there's not something on a piece of property than when there is something on a piece of property. Exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. And so I'm I was, you know, fascinated by the conversations about how these these communities are going to address, uh, again, on a macro level, those two issues. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to recommend some really good stories about the rebuilding efforts. Um, one by uh, Susie Cagle. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that last name right, um, from Curbed. She did a huge takeout on pretty much everything that's been going on, specifically in Santa Rosa. Um, I'd highly recommend that. And then your colleague, Liam. Yeah, Laura Newberry uh, with us with the LA Times uh, spent some time in Santa Rosa and did also a really nice piece. Um, again, summing up kind of everything that's been going on and some of these tough decisions people have had to make. Um, so we're going to talk about those issues uh, with our two guests, which you will hear right now. Okay. You ready? Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm ready. All right. Uh, you ready, John, for us to jump in uh, formally? Ready, ready out of the There we go. <laughs> All right. Here we go. We're here again with John Thill. Uh, he's a resident in Santa Rosa um, who was uh, uh, home and business property uh, was affected by the wildfires last year. And we spoke with John uh, uh, last year on this podcast. And so, John, thanks so much again for, for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. So, John, can you remind our listeners what your situation was in uh, in Santa Rosa before the fires? Yeah, so, um, you know, everything was pretty normal. Uh, we had just, my wife Colleen and I had just bought this property out here on uh, Mark West Springs Road for our business. And we had just made our first payment October 1st, and we were doing, we, we were feeling pretty darn good. And, uh. You know, it's time for our anniversary, which is October 9th, our wedding anniversary. That would have been uh, 36th wedding anniversary last year. I mean, I'm sorry, 35 last year. We just celebrated 36 a few days ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, the place, everything we owned and had burned down on our anniversary night. Wow. <laughs> After 35 years. And that's not just your your business, a body shop, right? But also your your home in in the Coffee Park neighborhood as that's, well. That's correct. Yeah, we had our home was in Coffee Park, and then we also had two uh, rental houses here on the business property that were also lost. So we lost that income too. And when when we talked to you last year, you were living in a mobile home. Um, where where are you currently living? So we're we're still living in the same uh, RV trailer. Uh, we were up in Windsor at the Windsor RV Park, and now we're out on our property on Mark West Springs Road where the body shop was. And uh, it helps out a lot because we're here on the property and, you know, all the cleanup stuff to do around here still is just, I mean, yeah, we've we got all the houses and stuff cleaned up, but the property itself is just such a mess with all the brush and old fences falling down and stuff like that, you know. So it makes it nice to be here living on the property what's what's life been like in an rv for a year um interesting (laughs) 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 um you know it's been okay it's you know what we i think my wife and i have learned a lot about each other (laughs) more more you know and not in a bad way in in really a good way sure it's helped us communicate better um i think it's helped our relationship a lot um, yeah, you're going to make me cry now. <laughs> um, 
it's been tough, but we're getting through it, you know? And uh, I really think, you know, like, yeah, it's been terrible. The whole experience has been traumatic, absolutely traumatic. I, I don't wish this on anyone. Um, but I even we, we talked already, um, kind of thinking that, like, yeah, we lost a lot of stuff, and everybody did. Everybody lost a lot of stuff. They lost their homes. They lost, you know, even some of their family members. But And it's terrible. But in, on the other hand of it, if you look on the other side, there's a lot of good that came from this fire, too. You know, even though we're struggling and stuff. But, um, you know, there's lessons learned. There's, you know, lessons learned on your... I don't know, uh, the stuff that you decide you want to keep or store, what good is it, you know? Yeah. A lot of that stuff comes to mind, and you're like, man, what what's the point of keeping all that stuff? It could just go tomorrow anyway. Hmm. Um, changes your perspective, I think, on just about everything, your whole life, actually. You know, your, your mate, your parents, your children, those are the most important things, really. The other stuff is just stuff. You know, we're we're lucky to have each other and and still be around to get through this. What's been the the most unexpected part of uh of your, your efforts to, to to rebuild things over the past year? Man, um, most unexpected part. Well, the whole thing was unexpected, really. But the rebuilding part, um, I think. I thought that I would have a better experience with my finance company. Our, our house finance company, that's fine. Um, we're, we're in the middle, and they're, they're doing our foundation. And, you know, they, we had to make our no, – neither one of our insurance companies or our finance companies are giving us any breaks on our payments. Mm. Um, that's tough. You mean like mortgage my, and, and lease payments? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, our property, you know, the actual payments for our property. Right. Uh, that's tough because my whole livelihood went up. It's gone. Yeah. And I'm working out of a couple of car, carport tents right now on the property to just try and make ends meet and keep things afloat here so I, we don't lose nothing. I, I can't imagine business has been good for you. And... Oh, no. It's it's bad in the, in the business that I do get. Uh, it, it's... Um, you know, really hard to work in these conditions. There's no yeah. shop here. Right. I'm working. I'm working in a carport tent. You know, it's it's just. But you know, and, and my wife Colleen, she kept telling me, she goes, "What? Um, how are you going to do this? What? Do you, how do you expect to be able to work?" I go, "You know what? I got I got to look back to where we came from. I started in our two car garage at home, from scratch, and I go, I'm back. I'm back to the two car garage, and I have to look at it from that perspective and just." I'm starting over. John, um, oh, sorry to interrupt. John, no. John, I, I think a lot of people in your position might say, screw it. We're, we're, uh, we're leaving this. We're not dealing with trying to rebuild our lives here. Let's go somewhere else. Did that, did that thought ever, uh, <laughs> ever cross your mind? Oh, probably uh, more than not. I mean, and, it's just like, what do you do? You walk away, but then... On the other end of it, we're like, well, then that'd be quitting, and mm-hmm. and we're not. We've never quit so far, and we're not planning on quitting now. 
So when do you expect your new home to be done, rebuild home so to be done? I think they said right around March. Okay. But you know how things go. It can slow up. It can be May, or April, May. We don't know. Yeah. But we know that they, they're they at least either very close to pouring the slab, the foundation, or they maybe they've already done it. I don't know. We, didn't, we haven't been by there today yet. So. And and until then, you're still in the RV. Yeah. Yep. Correct. When when you get back, how do you expect your neighborhood to be different? Uh, I think the people are going to be different because it's, it's probably going to be a little more tight knit. I don't know, but you know, just because I think people are going to be, be more understanding, maybe and, and less like likely to to judge. You know. What do you mean? Um, I I think we all learned a lesson. It's just like get along and don't prejudge your neighbor by how they keep their yard or whatever, you know, because it all can go away anyway. Mm. Sean, there's there's a lot of people who wonder, you know, we're, we're seeing fiercer and more frequent fires across the state. The, the place where you used to call home obviously um, is susceptible to those fires why why should we build there anyway isn't this just going to happen again i'm curious what you think about that uh you know there's always that chance but i i honestly feel i'm not worried about i think people are more aware that to be more careful around fire and mowers and whatever um but i think that whole fire was just like i called it the perfect storm because there's I mean, it's not going to go over that freeway again, I don't think, ever. I mean, it, it, I guess it could, but the other thing is the houses now are all going to have alarm systems on them. You know, all that stuff. We'll get a lot more pre-warning, I think, this time. Last time we had no warning. A lot of people would argue there there weren't enough homes in Santa Rosa before the fire. Right. Um, just looking at the the price of homes and the the rents that apartments charged there, yeah. um, certainly now there's definitely not enough ha- homes. No, uh-uh. and there there are people who who argue, hey, you know what? This was a horrible disaster, but it's also an opportunity to build more, build denser, build smaller. Um, <sighs> so, some people feel that that might change kind of the the character of the community i'm curious what your thoughts are uh you know what i i mean i i can't really say too much but i in my mind um i think denser is not a good thing you know that night of the fire up here at mark west springs road i remember mark west springs was just packed with traffic trying to get out of here i mean these homes are not dense out here there's other ways out right. like areas like Toppy park and and uh up here kind of around the area of, like, um, Larkfield and stuff, there wasn't a whole lot of ways to get out of here, and that traffic just... And it's, a lot of it's because there's, you know, it's dense. They, some of these newer projects, I see these homes coming up, and, I mean, there's... They'll make a two-way street and let you park on each side, and then there's not enough room to only get, like, one car through there with cars parked on the side. So they've really just made the streets really skinny... I don't think it's good. I think it's better to leave them a little more open. And, you know, because people need to have room to get out of a situation like that. 
but that's just what I think. I don't, I'm no expert, you know. Um, all right. I, I want to end this interview on a slightly lighter note. Uh, okay. <laughs> g- give me, give me your your funniest story of living in a RV for for a year. There's got to be oh. some. There's got to be some anecdote that you have that's like, well, this is pretty funny. The toilet is not a normal toilet. It's more like something you'd have on an airplane or something. Huh. <laughs> so. That's an issue right there. The toilet is uh, always an issue. Um, <laughs> um, Let me ask you this. Would you ever go cross-country in a Winnebago? <laughs> um, a drivable one? Yeah. yeah. Probably. Yeah. Oh. yeah but it, that'd be kind of up to, to Colleen, my wife. I, I think um, if that was something you know, she wanted to do when we retire or something like that. I think it'd be a lot of fun to go because we love. We did a long road trip a few years back. So living in confined quarters in an RV has that would not deter your appetite for a cross country Winnebago road trip. No. Wow! Not, wow! You, know you got what? a healthy I, marriage. I, <laughs> you got a healthy marriage. Hey, you know, we 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 all have our ups and downs in the marriage. Anybody who thinks that there's uh, a perfect marriage that's not even true but um you know a healthy marriage is made by being able to communicate and if something's wrong you tell your mate talk about it and you get past it and and move on and you don't keep up with the past stuff otherwise it'll just eat you up john we thank you so much for being willing to share your story with us again yeah thank uh, you and we wish you the best of luck um with with rebuilding thanks appreciate that Thank you so much, John. All right. You guys have a good day, huh? You too. Take care. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right. We're here with uh, Santa Rosa Mayor Chris Corsi, um, who is joining us again uh, uh, on the podcast to talk about what's happened in the years since uh, the fires in in his uh, community. Uh, Mayor Corsi, thank you so much. Great to be with you guys again. So why don't we start? um, Take us through what... Take us through a day of yours. Tell us what it's. I mean, is this? I assume this is all consuming, but maybe you can sort of put a put a finer point on that as far as what it takes for a city to rebuild. Um, it's uh, it's an interesting question. I haven't heard that one before, but um, as you can imagine, uh, dealing with the the day to day operations of a city of 180,000 people is is pretty all consuming in itself. Um, we don't have the luxury of, of a lot of money in our budget right now. In fact, we are running at a deficit. So, you know, we haven't added a, added staff to do this. We've just layered on um, a disaster recovery on top of everything else that we do. So, um, you know, the, the employees of this city uh, have been true heroes in my mind over the past year. Because they've taken on uh, what's basically a second job um, in the disaster recovery, in addition to what they were doing before, and uh, it's it's been impressive to watch them them at it. You asked me about my own day, and um, it's it's kind of the same. Um, the, there's a lot of people in this city who have uh, moved on from the disaster. 
and they want their needs taken care of. And then there's obviously a lot of people who have much greater needs because of the losses that they suffered a year ago. So um, I, I get to um, try and help those folks as well. What's the most common complaint that you hear from your constituents when it comes to the rebuilding? Um, it's It really varies. We've had so many different problems that crop up. And, you know, at, at the beginning, it had to do with debris removal. Um, then it had to do with insurance. Um, most recently, I've been starting to get complaints about about noise in the rebuild area hmm. from people whose houses didn't burn or from people who have moved back into a new house and uh, and are complaining about construction noise. Hmm. Um, you know, all of these things are are very real and very serious to the people who are are um, making complaints about them on the global scale. They they range from stuff that. You know, we we want to take care of right now to stuff that uh, doesn't doesn't rise to that kind of immediacy. Can you assess the pace of rebuilding efforts for us? Like, what actually has happened? Um, you know, how rebuilt is the community, and is it happening at a at a level or at a rate that you would have expected? It's actually happening at a faster rate than we expected. Um, the first city council meeting that we had after the fire. We established a, a separate uh, building and, and building inspection and permit department for people who were rebuilding their homes. Uh, you'll recall that we lost about 3,000 homes in Santa Rosa. So we knew that it was a big job to, to get these rebuilt. And we also knew that the people who were doing it never planned to, to be building a house for themselves. They already had a house. They didn't want to become housing builders or developers. So our, this department is a place where the people who work there understand that the folks walking through the door are not professionals, that they might need a little extra assistance, um, that they might also still be traumatized from whatever they're going through. So um, we created this separate department. As of today, um, there are 28 homes that have been completed and, and folks have moved back into those. Um, the first one was completed in May, uh, which was uh, about seven months after the fire, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, right now we have uh, 733 homes that are under construction, uh, 245 that have permits issued for construction, so um, close to 1,000 that are in the process, and then about 266 permits that are under review. So. Out of 3,000 homes, we've got about 1,300 that are somewhere in the process of rebuilding from anywhere from an application has been turned in to the house is, is occupied. That's uh, probably twice as many as what we expected after talking to other um, jurisdictions that have gone through this situation. Hmm. Why do you think it's uh, gone quicker than you thought? Um I think that it's gone quicker because we've we've made it easier. We've um, not only created this department, we've reduced fees, we've um, we've we've cut some of the the red tape that people have to go through. Also, this is uh, a resilient community. Um, people 
bounced back. Um, the the fellow who built the first house or completed the first house, um, he was in my ear and, and my inbox uh, on a daily basis. He and his, his builder, um, almost from the time that the, the ashes cooled, um, there were folks who really wanted to get started fast and who have. Um, I, I just got a note, though, that as, as, as good as, as it is for us to have 1,300 homes in the process, that means that 1,700 are not. And those are the folks that, that I worry about and um, that I find myself uh, uh, trying to, to comfort at times. Uh, this job is sometimes like a counselor. Mm. Uh, but there are a lot of folks out there who haven't started the recovery process for various reasons, and, and that might be that they're, they don't have enough insurance, um, the cost of building is high here, um, or they may just not be ready yet emotionally. Um, I think that some people forget, you know, a year later that these people lost everything, every single thing that they owned within the space of a few hours. And there, there are people still still dealing with that trauma. Have you had all of the help you've needed from the state? Um, we've had great partnerships with with the state and federal government. Our representatives in Sacramento, our two congressmen in Washington, have been really helpful. Um, we still meet fairly frequently with um, with folks from FEMA. Uh, and the California Office of Emergency Services. You know, it hasn't been a, a seamless uh, effort. Um, I think that, you know, when bureaucracies try to work together, sometimes they, they run into the bureaucracy of each other. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're still working together and still trying to, to solve the, the many problems that come up. For for those who are rebuilding or our houses are being built, are are these people who were living in the communities before? Are they newcomers, or, or, or you know how has the, sort of the demographics um, changed, or how and how do you expect them to change as this process moves forward? I uh, you know I don't have the the data to support this answer, but I can tell you that that my feeling and my anecdotal information tells me that the the. 1,300 homes that are under construction are being built to um, to house the people who lived in them before before they burned. Um, some of them may have been rental homes, but I think most of them are owner occupied. We have. Um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there for a minute. Um, so I asked about the, de- the demographics of those who are rebuilding and, and potentially demographic changes to the entire community as this process continues. Right. We're actually seeing um, quite a few lots for sale, uh, which indicates that you know, either the person has left the community or has just decided to move to another house in the community. Uh, I think that that represents probably uh, about 7% of all the properties that burned. Uh, so, you know, that's a significant number, but we don't really know where those people have landed. Um, when when we talk about uh, people in Coffee Park being displaced, I, I feel like the focus is often on homeowners and whether they're going to rebuild or not. 
but about 50% of the, the residents there were renters and may not have had access to some of um, the insurance benefits that would allow them to come back. I'm curious, has the city done anything to make sure that that portion of the community stays in place? Well, you're absolutely right about the significant number of renters who lost their homes. Um, we are in the process of putting a, uh, our unmet needs study together for uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development that uh, will be will be receiving money from from HUD to help with those unmet needs, and um, that's that's in process. But the other thing that um, we've found is that, as you know, we had a, a housing shortage and, and honestly a housing crisis before the fires. Um, it was really hard to find a place in Santa Rosa and the rents are, are very high. Uh, about half of the renters in Santa Rosa are what's known as rent burdened. They're right. paying, yep. paying a significant portion of their income just on their, on their rent. So anyway, we had this problem. 3,000 homes burned down, and all of those people need a place to live. Uh, most of them have some resources available to them. And so that created an even greater crunch in the rental market. Uh, we've uh, had some price gouging issues that the district attorney has, has charged some people with. But we, we saw rents go higher, uh, and we saw vacancy rates go down. So we know that uh, the problem is there. We're trying to get a handle on, on what the scope of that problem is. But uh, in, in response, and honestly, we probably would have done this anyway, but it became really apparent that we needed it. We've got a housing bond on the um, on the ballot next month, an affordable housing bond uh, to try and raise uh, $125 million toward new affordable housing in Santa Rosa. This is a city bond effort or a county effort? It's a city bond effort. Wow, we tried, okay. tried yeah. to go countywide, yeah. and politically it just wasn't viable. Hmm. It, is it your impression that the majority of renters – affected by this in Coffee Park have left or stayed? You know, again, we don't have the data, and I wish, I wish we did. I've been trying to figure out ways to, to, to get it. Uh, but I think it would be easy to say the majority are still here. Hmm. I don't know how large the minority that have left actually is. So this is it's a question I've been wanting to ask for a while. It's my impression, and I'll sort of lead into it. It's my impression that generally the rebuilding has been um, sort of what was there before, right, in the various neighborhoods um, that were affected, um, both Coffee Park and, um, you know, some of the more fire-prone, you know, fire-prone areas or hillside areas. What's going in there is essentially what was there before. Is that is that right? As far as uh, building footprints, yes. Um, you know, people are, uh, they, they have to bring their homes up to current code, right. which uh, is a lot stricter and also is part of the expense of, of building the new house. But uh, the great majority of rebuilds are either on the exact footprint or with very minor modifications. So th that leads to sort of this question. Um, 
you know, there's um, was a lot of talk about, well, in certain areas of this region, given the risk of fire, maybe we shouldn't build there uh, again, number one. And then number two, given the sort of the housing shortage that you already alluded to um, in this conversation, maybe there are other areas that were less fire prone or already more dense that you should be, be considering building more densely. And it doesn't seem like either of those things have occurred. And I'm wondering from your perspective why, why you don't think that that is. Well, let me let me take that in in two parts. Yeah. And the first is is rebuilding in fire prone areas. Uh, I think that there are people who have decided not to rebuild in in the fire zone uh, because of that. But the fact is that state law allows people gives people the right to rebuild what was a legal house. So the city has um, we don't have the ability to tell folks they can't rebuild their home. Uh, if we had money, we could buy their, their lots from them and, and then decide there was nothing going to be built on them. But we don't have that kind of resource. And for Do you all wish the talk, you did? Are, are there all the talk about that is nobody has come forward with uh, any ideas to create that kind of resource. Are, mm-hmm. are there specific instances where you wish you did have that resource and specific properties where you're like, yeah, I would buy that house so we didn't rebuild there? No, not specific properties because I mean to to make a make a big difference, I think that we would have to buy up like many many right. properties yeah. um, so you know that hasn't really been part of our deliberation in this because it's just it's not realistic at this point so on on the other front, why not build more in safer areas uh, we've actually done a lot with our policy and, and regulatory powers to create the atmosphere and, and the ability to build denser, uh, higher, more transit-oriented uh, projects in our downtown Santa Rosa area. That's uh, the focus of our housing bond. It's the focus of our of our regular planning and building efforts uh, that that aren't part of the rebuild. But uh, we've we've put laser focus on building downtown in Santa Rosa. Those are the projects that, uh, that are first in line when they come in. Those are the projects that have uh, support, not just from the city council, but from the community, uh, both the business community, the environmental community, the labor community. Uh, we have agreement that building denser downtown is the future of this city. What are the regulatory changes that you just referenced? What have you guys done? Uh, again, we've uh, we've allowed a lot of by right development uh, in the downtown. So, but by right, go ahead, Liam. I yeah. Know so, you that, wanna... so just to, so essentially, development without um, a sort of an extra level of city council review or permitting review, sort of kind of over the over the counter permitting, right? Right. Yeah. And you know, some of it's by right, some of it's um, closer to by right. The the process has been streamlined. Uh, we've reduced fees to incentivize density, height, and affordability in the downtown area. So the uh, the denser you build, the higher you build, the more affordable units you build, the less your fee burden is. And, and so the focus on, on that there, as opposed to, say, Coffee Park, for instance, the reason is that there's more political consensus um, to build, to sort of push all, all these efforts downtown, or kind of walk me through that? Well, Coffee Park 
was a was a mature um, neighborhood of single family homes. Uh, it's not going to become denser. Uh, there was there was some talk about that uh, from from some folks who um, didn't live there, but uh, that was never the intent of, this, of the city council. <laughs> um, last time we talked, you referenced the Kmart. I don't know if you remember this. I'm sure you're aware of the Kmart still. Yep. Yeah, um, and, you, and that we thought that that was a good site for multifamily housing. Exactly. Right. So right. update us on the Kmart. What's going on with the Kmart? So it is a bare piece of ground right now. Um, my understanding at one point was that uh, I think it was Lowe's Home Improvement had an option to buy the property and was talking to our planning department about a home improvement store there. Uh, I, I don't know that, that that has actually gone anywhere. I don't think we've received any applications. Again, uh, I think that we've let the, uh, the community and the, and the development community know that we would be open to multifamily housing on that site, but we have not received any proposals to that effect. And, and it's a piece of private property, so we don't have uh, a lot of control over what happens there. Um, you know, to we can let people know what we what we would like to see, but uh, we can't make that decision. So there's no city action you could take to ensure that residential and not commercial is built on that vacant lot. Not that I know of. It's a it's a legal um, uh, commercial property at this point. Okay. Uh, what do you expect your city to look like one year from now? Uh, probably much the same as it does right now. Hmm. There'll be more houses built, obviously, in, in the burned areas. But the kind of developments that we're talking about downtown are not going to be built in a year. Um, it would be great if we saw some, some progress and even breaking ground within a year, but I think that that's optimistic. Two years, I think, is... is more along the lines of where you would actually see some building activity downtown. But we don't have anything at this point that I see um, putting up construction cranes in the next year. What kind of advice would you give a mayor or elected official in another city that may face um, a similar um, large-scale natural disaster here in California? Well, first of all, I, and I, I do this all the time when I talk to other elected officials, uh, get ready, be prepared, know what your role is, uh, know how your emergency plans are supposed to work. Because when you talk about another mayor who may face something similar, you have to account for every mayor in the state of California. We live in a place where wildfires, earthquakes, floods, mudslides are part of our natural environment. And uh, I was not prepared to be the mayor of a, of a town that has a disaster. Um, I wish that I had thought about it more. But uh, I don't think that, you know, we, we don't like to think about the possibilities of something like that. But uh, I would just advise everybody to think about it. Yeah. 
Um, okay, I think that's that's it for my questions. Yeah, uh, me too. Um, Mayor Koshy, thank you so much again for your time. We appreciate it. All right, Matt and Liam, it's good to talk to you. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast. This is Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at mlevinreports. And for me, Liam, I am also on Twitter at, at Dylan Liam. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks.